Hi, I'm David Freudberg, host of Humankind. Listeners know that we explore many realms of the human journey, and some of our podcasts, including some of my favorites, delve into wisdom traditions, sometimes ancient writings or teachings that arise from a variety of backgrounds, sources that help us to focus on truths that really matter. And a lot of this boils down to connecting to something bigger than ourselves, to see that we're all part of some mysterious river of meaning, that the whole is truly greater than the sum of its parts. When I can get calm and touch that inner place of quietude, it points me homeward. Thank you. Support for Humankind comes from the Humankind Program Fund. Our series is produced in association with WGBH Boston and The Network Incorporated. We only need to pick up our newspapers and read the worst wars in the world are religious wars. And I think we have to be always asking ourselves, um, is is religion here nourishing the spirit of of life or has it um, gotten off that track? The path of people who regard themselves as spiritually inclined but who do not affiliate with organized religion. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. America's freedom of religion assures that a rich variety of religious and non-religious experiences will flourish, as they have since the country was founded by wig-wearing idealists in the 1700s. And this mixture of approaches has long fascinated Bradley University religion professor Robert Fuller, who studies people's motivations for choosing different paths. There was a psychologist in the mid-20th century at Harvard. His name was Gordon Elport, and he was very interested in personality theory. And he was absolutely shocked one day to realize that people who attend religious organizations were more likely to have racial prejudice than those who don't. And he, as a believer and as a church member, um, was almost horrified by this. And so he began with this set of questions. Who are these individuals? And he made a distinction that he was able to ask some questions to differentiate what he called extrinsic belonging and intrinsic belonging. Extrinsic was, um, I like to be seen here. I want my neighbors to know that I belong. Uh, It's important for me perhaps for business relationship or social standing, but there wasn't much of an interconnection with either the doctrines or the experiences, the rituals um, that drove them. And he differentiated that from intrinsic, people looking for an outlook on life, a way to organize their priorities for not just short-term interests, but longer-term objectives of their significance of why they're here on earth. And by the way, he found that people who scored high on the intrinsic religion had very little racial prejudice, but the extrinsic did. Professor Fuller, based in Peoria, Illinois, is the author of Spiritual But Not Religious. He has spent decades analyzing the spectrum of belief, from people who choose to belong to traditional religion to those who view life as a spiritual journey outside of religion to people who choose not to believe at all. A trend he's noticed is that some people who describe themselves as belonging to religion may not hold deep religious convictions. 
more than a belief, it's the group they identify with. In any culture, not just the United States, we need to bind together. We need at times to sacrifice our immediate personal interests to, for the good of the group. And belonging to the religious organization signals your willingness to do that. It signals your uh, sense of the good of the group. And I think for many people, it's a, it's a form of loyalty. This might, for example, explain why you so often see American flags at churches. Um, this kind of connection of loyalty to the group nationally and uh, religiously. Even Billy Graham, the, the famed evangelist, who seemed to appeal to people from many denominations in the United States, once said, that, you know, to first to be a, a good American, you must first be a good Christian. If you're a good Christian, you must then be a, a good American. This sense of willingness um, to be a good citizen, to support um, others. And so I think for many people, it signals that more so perhaps than any actual specific beliefs about the afterlife or um, gods. According to a recent survey, nearly five out of six Americans declare a religious affiliation. The remainder identify with no tradition in particular or say they're unsure or non-believers. But for Robert Fuller, these simple labels don't always reveal the full picture. Well, every group needs ways of distinguishing who's a member and who's not a member. Now, in human culture, as opposed to other species on planet Earth, which also have their ways of, of signaling who's in the group and, and who's not out group, in group territorialism, um, uh, adherence to religious belief is one of our, our quickest ways of signaling to other human beings whether we're in their group or not. It can certainly distinguish whether you're Shiite or Sunni Muslim. It can distinguish whether you're Irish Catholic or Irish Protestant. But um, you're saying that in some cases it's not actual adherence to a belief. I think you, yes, well, I, I think that you signal the adherence to the belief at an outer behavioral level. It may not translate also to personally having deep commitment. There's many people who are attending churches for whom their religious beliefs don't really dictate. I mean, you can become, for example, born again, and within a few weeks, it really hasn't made much change in how you spend your money, how you devote your time um, either to family or to recreation, etc. So not always, of course, does a religious belief translate into any meaningful action. Let's shift now to Americans today who regard themselves as having a spiritual higher power, but who choose not to participate in organized religion. How many people are in this category, and why are they spiritual but not religious? Okay. Well, we have different statistics to tell us this. I'm sticking with a figure that's a little higher than some recent studies have shown. I'm showing that about 40% of Americans have no meaningful relationship with a religious organization. This group, he says, ranges from atheists to people of sincere faith who don't join organized religion. Robert Fuller acknowledges that in matters of private belief, the lines of demarcation can be fuzzy. A large sector of Americans hold profound spiritual convictions, 
but he does not count as serious believers those who appear to be just going through the motions. People showing up at services a couple of times a year for major holidays, but who are not otherwise engaged. In a sense, he focuses on the opposite group, people who choose not to attend religious services, but who deeply contemplate matters of life and death, connection and meaning. These individuals are just as curious, maybe even more curious about these questions. In fact, within that, now I'm going to say about one in five Americans fits my definition of being very spiritually interested, but not affiliated with a religious organization. And when you say they may actually be more curious than some people Mm -hmm. who are seriously affiliated with a religion, is that because they don't have the pat answers that can sometimes be fed by religions and and therefore it's a more engaged kind of uh, exploration? Absolutely. And maybe now, by the way, let's just take one brief second here. The words religion and spiritual are really interchangeable terms. And I could easily say that's a very religious person, very spiritual. And I think for most of history, they have been very interchangeable. We have come recently, most persons listening today are are thinking, um, I think of now of spirituality as a little bit more private, individual. Religion is a little more public in in a congregational setting. Spirituality has a little bit more flexibility with what I believe. Religion has more fixed. And this becomes the key concept. Does a religious group have a monopoly on religious truth? Adherents of most traditions probably believe, yes, my group does have maybe not a total monopoly, but the absolute best expression of this. And I think that the individuals that I'm talking about in the United States today, this roughly 20% of the population, um, who we say could be very curious and very questing um, for these kinds, they absolutely reject the idea that any one religion has more monopoly on this than any other. So that's why they're very curious about exploring a little bit about Buddhism, a little bit about Hinduism, a little bit about the um, Kabbalah Judaism has become fashionable recently, maybe Native American spirituality, um, religions of the ancient past, um, so that there's much more of a curiosity here of exploring. And there's also this sense of experimentalism. Only I can decide what's true for me, so I need to try this on, see how it works in my life. How does it connect? And so there is a a sense of wanting to experiment. Do you find comparing the people who are identified with an established religion with those people who aren't but who are on a spiritual quest that the people who aren't affiliated are more alive in some way? Ah, you know... um, Gosh, I, I probably am going to answer yes for that. To be on, to be truthful, I, I feel a little bit um, troubled by answering in that because it, it seems a little. But I, I have sensed that. I have sensed this real spark of. I mean, uh, as a professor and teacher, of course, I prefer people who are asking questions and don't feel they have all fixed answers. So, in that sense of answering yes to that question, I do sense that spark, that aliveness, a freshness, because it is fresh and new. And, you know, a, a possible criticism of this, um, 
there is a sense that these individuals change their beliefs more often. I, I used to laugh and call them convertibles. They they easily convert from one, you know, you, you, you run into them on the street one week and I'm into Baha'i and, and uh, you run into them six months later. Well, now I'm really into yoga in, in six months. So there's a convertibleism, a constant changing. And, 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 and the risk of, of being a dilettante. Mm-hmm. You, you know, we could say, is, is religion about a destination or a journey? And, and the spiritual but not religious, it's definitely a journey. And it's constantly, and this is what I said about this freshness, wanting to experiment and to try on and to see how this works in my life. And for others, the, the persons who are more comfortable in a religious congregation, religion has become a home. Something is, they found what works, or at least they, they sense that this works. It could seem that someone who chooses to embark on a spiritual odyssey outside of traditional religion is directionless. When in fact, for many people whom I've met and talked with who would describe themselves that way, they feel a fervent sense of direction. It's just not certain kinds of direction. Right. And, and they, but I still think there's this what we I like to use the word heuristic, meaning I'm open to still discovering more truth. And that's very different than feeling like I've discovered I already contain this book that I'm holding in my hand contains every truth that is important or, or necessary. And it's a closed book. And I think that is a, is a huge difference. It actually scares me when I meet people who feel like they've reached the end of a journey um, and that everything is now static and frozen because that's sort of deadly to me. Well, it can be too because it the, the, the quest for more knowledge is also the quest to be inclusive and to recognize the validity of others' points of view. And I think we're all aware, when does the moment come that religion goes from what is best about the human spirit and most about what is our open and loving and, and approach to reality to embrace it and affirm it and want to nourish it and strengthen it to becoming where it comes that we Um, stiffen our back to fight and to become um, intolerant. We're talking with Robert Fuller, Bradley University religion professor and author of Spiritual But Not Religious. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. Ask what what sets people off wanting to explore spirituality and to, to go looking for the road less traveled. It really comes down to two factors, and one is um, an inability to intellectually accept just the tradition that you were exposed to early in life as the one truth that that has a monopoly on religious truth. And the second is, I think, a desire for something that speaks more deeply to you experientially. Um, can I sense God? Can I feel God? I, just you mean as not, a, not just the, the pages of a hymn book? Yes, absolutely. Do I have, just as though in my friendships with people, I, I've had moments where I feel this connection with other people that makes my relationship with her or him meaningful. Do I have that sense of relationship with God? And if you haven't sensed that in your institutional upbringing, you yearn for it. And this sense you. So there's both an experiential yearning and an intellectual yearning. And it would be stronger in one person than another. But those two are really the main things that put people on a quest or a search. 
If not in the context of traditional organized religion, by what kinds of attitudes and practices do people in this spiritual but not religious group express their spirituality? Yeah. It, it's many ways and not necessarily in activities that you can point to and say, oh, that is an absolutely religious or, or, spiritual, or spiritual practice. Spirituality can be something that informs our activities in any walk of life and in volunteerisms. And let me point this out. If I, I want to stick with some nice, easy generalizations. I would say religion's comfortable with an idea of God as a um, supreme being who rules reality from above, conventionally conceived of as a male, a king of kings, a judge, but a father in, who art in heaven, uh, a male supreme being who rules reality from above. Spirituality tends to see God in less personal, more impersonal terms as Holy Spirit and a spirit that nourishes reality from within. Now, in the first model, the religion model, sin and immoral behavior is breaking the commandments of that God. So that if we believe that a Bible contains the God said this, 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 and you break that, you're in sin. The other model, the more spiritual model, looks at God as an imminent spiritual force trying to nourish reality from within. And what is sinful is any behavior that thwarts the full expression of life. What is a spiritual practice is anything that nourishes the full expression of life. So a very spiritual activity might be working with young children. It might be in a helping profession. It might be doing counseling. It might be just being a good friend to listen and to help a, a, an individual through a, a moment of crisis in their lives. It might be concerned with ecological issues. It might be social justice issues. So things like gender oppression, racial oppression, class oppression are actually anti-God if God is viewed as um, a, an imminent spiritual force nourishing reality from within. So many spiritual practices are about just enriching life and allowing life to grow and, and develop. So it's a little bit hard to point and say, oh, because in religion we can say, well, one hour a week in this building, that's a religious practice. And under the more spiritual practice, um, commitment to the reverence and sacredness of life and, and what is it that will protect that life and, and again, protect and nourish it. Um, it can be all throughout all of our activities. What about the people who attend a church or worship service once a week on a Sunday or a Saturday in Judaism or a Friday in Islam or whatever the calendar of a particular faith tradition may be and who nevertheless aspire to and sometimes do carry that feeling with them through the rest of the week, people for whom their religious devotion is not confined to an hour or so in a house of worship. Well, absolutely. And um, sometimes we don't see this aspect of American religious organizations enough. There has certainly been in the last 10 years or so a, a greater vocal expression. It may have been there all along. Certainly members of all of our religious congregation have felt stewards of God's creation and felt that it was incumbent upon them to witness to their faith by being good stewards of nature, stewards of society. Um, if we go back to the great um, Hebrew prophets, um, Isaiah, Jeremiah, um, etc., telling us that religion isn't just a one-hour-a-week practice in a, in a temple, that it, it's how we treat the poor, it's how we treat the oppressed, and it, it's, it's witnessing to... Um, God's creation.
The polarity between formal adherence to religion and informal personal spirituality has existed since the founding of America. In fact, historians point out that contrary to what we might think, most people living in the early United States were not even churchgoers. Perhaps no one embodies these American cross-currents more than Thomas Jefferson. Author of the Declaration of Independence, he was actually most proud of his role in drafting the Virginia Act for establishing religious freedom. Thomas Jefferson is so interesting because he had the rationalist, this-worldly thinking impulses that we think of as non-belief. But he was very inspired by we, ha- we live in a universe. It's not just a void. It's not a vacuum. There is a creation here, and the grandeur of it certainly suggests an, uh, an intelligent architect. And uh, so that there was a reverence for life and for the life source, even if he couldn't fill in all the details. My reading of Thomas Jefferson is that he did believe in the existence of a god. He just wasn't too thrilled by the strictures and the structures of organized religion. Exactly. And I think he rejected some of the ways this God was being portrayed in his day in the pulpits of America. He, he was quite certain this was too um, narrowing human thought about the great cosmic cause not opening us to, to consider it and contemplate it. Um, but yes, he did have a deep spiritual sensibility for the universe. And, and it, this pervaded um, his quest for truth and justice and, and um a system that he thought would lead to perfectibility of humans. Now, I may have my history wrong, but doesn't the concept that our rights as Americans for equality and for freedom derive from the creator? And, and well, isn't that in the Declaration well, of Independence? Well, it is in the Declaration so, of Independence. So, so that's a, that's a yes. pretty strong statement it, it, of spiritual but not religious. Yes, it is, but still spiritual. Um, but it is interesting that you know so many of the architects of our, of our national system weren't typical um, believers of the churches of their time. That was true Thomas of George Payne, Washington. Yeah, it was Washington, true of Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin for certain, Thomas Paine, Ethan Allen, uh, James Madison, uh, Adams is a little more difficult, but he was more like what we would today call a Unitarian, um, very rationalist approach to religion and wanted to filter um, religion through reason. And Americans were very pluralistic then. The the more educated book readers were reading books in what we today would call New Age concepts. They would think of it in terms of the um, kind of mystical philosophies that go way back to Plato that were being filtered. We sometimes call this Gnostic um, belief systems, and they were very exploring those. So there's always this combining and exploring. And that's what people do today. They combine and explore. And even those who attend churches today um, um, filter their church message often through ideas they've read in a recent book, heard on Oprah. Um, we, We get our informational sources, and these create filters in us. So two people sitting next to each other in a church hear the sermon filtered very differently. And it's interesting to, we'll never know all the different filters that we carry, all of our friends um, carry with them as they filter out religious messages. Um, And we might be very surprised. So a lot of the exploring and experimenting that I'm talking about, people who want to read recent psychological books, whether it's from Carl Jung or anything about self-reliance, recently books like The Celestine Prophecy, Road 
road, less traveled kind of books, um, as they use that to filter, whether they've heard something from an Eastern religious concept, from some an alternative medical system, um, and healing philosophies. Um, many of our 12-step programs have a, a spirituality built into them. All of these create filters, and um, although these come from outside and are part of the spiritual but not religious questing seeker religion that I um, think and write about so much, they also inform the spirituality of many of those who do attend and, and feel comfortable in a church congregation. So it, it will never it, really it, It's really not an entirely either-or It's or not proposition. an either-or, and we will meet many people who are quietly and privately sitting in a Roman Catholic Mass or in a Reformed Jewish uh, service and filtering it in ways that of different things they've recently encountered, something a friend has said, something they've read, something they heard in a lecture. And so it isn't an either or. There's this dynamic combining that goes on in our individual lives. You mentioned self-reliance. Mm -hmm. Let's discuss a fascinating 19th century American, Ralph Waldo Emerson of Concord, Massachusetts. He clashed with organized religion. He felt the church worshiped dogma Yet he found a deep spiritual presence in his own life, in the nature around him. Tell us about Ralph Waldo Emerson's yeah. journey. In Emerson's epical book, Nature, he started to strike out in this road less traveled that so many of us have followed, and we can all trace this lineage back to this very significant individual. He had been a Unitarian minister, and he'd found both, if you will, the science of his day, too worldly, not focused enough on what transcends the material world. And yet he'd even found the religions of his day caught in ways of an ancient past, and he thought there must be a spirituality that can speak to the present and aim us to a more open, wider future, and he became a spokesperson for what he called transcendentalism. And he said that when he was alone in nature, he would let go of his everyday thinking patterns, things what we might call meditating today, finding some contemplative um, receptivity inwardly, and he began to feel the currents of universal being circulate through them. And by that he meant he felt open to a higher reality that somehow would surge through his life and empower him to a greater, more expansive living. He called this self-reliance. Now by self, he didn't mean just what's contained within me, but he did mean this as opposed to taking all my bearings from my social group. It was the opposite of always looking to others for what I should think or feel. He believed that when we open ourselves to God inwardly, privately, personally, we, we get the best sense of self. I am connected to the first cause of the universe. That force which has given rise to a whole universe is present and can flow in my life and make me a co-creator of the universe. That I'm not just a guilty, sinful creature who needs to repent and beg forgiveness. I can assume my role as a co-creator of God's world if I let God's spirit flow through me. Now, this, first of all, does require some inwardness, some quietness, some presence prayerful approach to life. You can't remain all day long listening to your iPod and to watching television and live the spiritual life. You have to cultivate receptivity, according to Emerson. So you um, mean turn off our gadgets? Yes, turn off our gadgets. Now, whether it's a walk through the woods and his good buddy Thoreau was uh, advocating that, but you can't, if you want to be to your own inner drummer, and you want to hear the Spirit of God speaking through you and flowing through your life and, and helping you march, you do have to develop inwardness, receptivity, contemplativeness. Whether this is done again through walking, 
through sitting quietly, if you want to call it prayer, meditation. Um, this is what Emerson thought was the first key to authentic human existence, is cultivating inward connection with God. And I think the word spirituality, of course, fits well. But then he combined that with a sense of being willing to take the road less traveled, um, being willing to experiment with new ideas and to try them on to see what works for your life. Because we and only we can judge what's true for us. And Emerson believed that finally we must individually as selves uh, make those spiritual discriminations. Um, and that it there isn't just a one-size-fits-all um, notion of, of religion. So Emerson, way back in the 1830s, I think, is uh, the real beginning and the flourishing of the spiritual but not religious, that there are many uh, spiritual styles, and we each need to find one that best comports with our own talents and unique sensitivities and sensibilities. Bradley University religion professor Robert Fuller, based in Peoria, Illinois, is the author of Spiritual But Not Religious. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. Studio recording by Antonio Oliard. Editorial assistance from Thomas Royal and Kathy Graham. Music by Gunnar DeBosi. Webmaster Brian K. Johnson. Special thanks to Tony Buck. Our program is produced by Human Media in association with WGBH Boston and The Network Incorporated. Program development provided by Shart Media. You can hear more episodes of our series at humankindpodcast.org. That's humankindpodcast.org. This segment, Spiritual But Not Religious, is Humankind Program number 141. The executive producer is David Freudberg. Please subscribe to our free weekly podcast. The title is Humankind on Public Radio. You can find it at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all major podcast services, as well as through our website. Again, the podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you'd like to support our program, please visit humankindpodcast.org. And at the top, click on How You Can Help. Thank you.